This is Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota, and senior partner at the Dendros Group. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I've stated are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. And I'm Don Eubanks, Associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group, VP of Programming at Ampers, and Counter Stories producer. So uh, we're, we we have a lot to talk about. So this is going to be another one of our grab bag episodes because we're going to have to get to a lot. So I want you to imagine on this on this on this fall season that you've got a nice fire roaring and a group of your friends of color all sitting around, sipping some cider, having a good time reminiscing. And then, of course, the headlines hit and we end up having a lot to talk about. So let's get into it. First, uh, I, I want to bring up something that, you know, it's 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 a little bit dated now, but there's a whole lot of things that are connected to it that I want us to be, get a chance to weigh in on. Um, if you have been following the news, especially as it relates to the University of Minnesota system, uh, you will have encountered uh, comments after uh, Representative uh, Steve Sviggum made comments about the University of Minnesota Morris campus. So if, for those who are listening, the University of Minnesota has many campuses across the state. And the Morris campus is a, a, a mostly white and native campus um, in Morris, Minnesota. And uh, as the vice president of then vice president, he has since stepped down. But the then vice president of the uh, U of M Board of Regents. Vice chairman. Uh, was vice chairman. Yes, thank you. Um made a statement uh, asking a, asking the question, is it possible in reference to the declining enrollment that the campus is, that particular campus is facing, um, ask the question, is it possible that Morris, uh, that at Morris we've become too diverse? <laughs> and when pushed back, pushed on it a little bit, uh, his response was, I understand at 72 years old that I say things that I would never have thought when I was 52, but it gives you a little freedom to do that. So he kind of flipped it off. Um, and, of course, the response has been, what the hell? So so can I first just ask if any of you guys know um, why we care about the Board of Regents? Like, what is the power of the U of M Board of Regents? Well, you should step into that space, Hilly, because it is a very influential space. And regents go through a very um, scrutinizing process to be able to get appointed as a as a regent so it's not simple um and it's highly political i had a friend who went through a really rigorous process to become a regent and um i guess they're volunteers which i thought was like wow such a rigorous process to get in for a volunteer position but according to their website um the u of m board of regents is the university's governing board so they articulate the vision for the university and the work to fulfill its mission of education, research, and outreach for the benefit of, of the people of Minnesota, the nation, and the world. So that is their mission statement. For folks who don't know why it's important that somebody on this board said this. So I think, I mean, I think another analogy would be it, it it's akin to a nonprofit that has an executive director and then also um, a board, a board of directors. So while the university has a president, the uh, the president works with the board of regents. 
to fulfill that mission. And and it's an old board, so, so it also carries with it some cultural authority in the state as well. It was established in 1851 at the founding of the University of Minnesota. Um, and so there's there's also some some cultural meaning behind the seats, or at least there has been historically. It's one of those things that's that's been part of the of the millwork of of white Minnesota for a long time. But you know, Anthony. But to get back to to your opening, you know, your opening comment about uh, about uh, Steve Swingham, who was the uh, vice chair, you know. A little context because they were having um, uh, uh, the Board of Regents was discussing um, declining enrollment throughout the system. And even when I before I retired um, and right prior to COVID, um, there was declining enrollment across the board in Minnesota state school systems and across the board. But what made, you know, I think um, Svigum also um, commented prior to him making that comment that he had heard from a couple of constituents, you know, friends of his who raised that point. So he prefaced before prefaced that before making the comment that could it be that, you know, Morris is too diverse. And when I first heard that comment come out of his mouth, I couldn't believe it. I mean, you know, he, um, and the fact, and I remember reacting, the fact that there were a couple of individuals who were biased enough to feel that there were too many students of color, which is, and to suggest that that's why other white students weren't enrolling it more. I mean, all that was wrapped up in that one little question he tried to play off. And I couldn't believe it because this is coming from a region. So, I mean, but, and Swingham's got a, a history and a past also. So coming out of his mouth, I don't, you know, it, I was just surprised that he, you know, he tried to play it off as he did, you know, using the 72 year old thing. And mm. then, you know, because there was immediate, well, I, there was immediate reaction, but I, but you know, I, in the community, but the, the immediate reaction came from the native American community because in your, in your introduction, you mentioned that, you know, the, the Minnesota, there's a Minnesota system, but we've talked about how the university of Minnesota is a land grant university. And we talked about what, land grants meant and and um and the universe the university of minnesota morris was the one portion of the university of minnesota that actually honored that um the uh, land grants by offering free tuition for native americans in their undergrad program do you and think don so, that it was a direct jab at that new policy that just went into effect but one or two years ago well, no, they have been – University of Minnesota Morris has been accepting Native American students with uh, free tuition for years. The, oh. the additional, the additional um, thing that the University of Minnesota just instituted came about in the past year where they will be looking at offering uh, 
tuition at their Twin Cities campus for Native Americans who have historical ties to tribes here in Minnesota. So Morris had already been doing it. The University of Minnesota Morris campus had been doing it already for years. Gotcha. And understand that we're talking about a student body that is 54% white, about 32% native, and 4% um, or less of other ethnicities represented as the student body itself. And so the first thought that came to my mind when I heard um, and and, and read up on, on the comment is this signaling, right? This is this 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 thought that one possible reason for a declining enrollment could be that there's too many people of this ethnicity, right? So it's so it it makes me cringe and laugh for sake of crying because we only you know even in all of the conversations about how diverse is too diverse or any of these insinuations that nobody's really asking except for folks who are made uncomfortable by not having a white majority, um, we've. They're all in situations where we're still talking about majority white spaces, even at the Supreme Court as, as affirmative action uh, or race uh, policies that universities have had to try to get more people of color into the university to change the predominant white status so that there's more diverse space. Even those who have implemented them, managed to figure out ways to do that, are still majority white institutions. It hasn't changed the needle at all. So I, I, there's a question in my mind about the insinuation about being we should be, you know, possibly scared that there's too many people of color coming and we're getting too diverse and therefore white folks don't want to come near. You know, Anthony, I'm glad you said that because that was similar to my reaction when I I heard his statement. I asked, "What does that mean? What does what too much mean? And where is your threshold?" You know, with the 54 percent majority white institution, 54% is more than 50%, which means it's more than the majority. I mean, more than half. And and it seems that folks who have an issue with having a diverse anything, diverse student body, diverse neighborhood, diverse workplace, like there is, there's this unspoken equation in their mind in terms of what that threshold is. And when when they're looking at it from a place of scarcity, meaning, well, I don't have as much representation as I want or as I'm accustomed to, right? 54% isn't as much as, say, 60% or 75%. And that's what's making them nervous. But then you question what's behind this quote-unquote nervousness anyway. what What is happening as a result of a 32% Native American student population at Morris. We haven't heard anything, you know? I mean, th- these are constant dog whistles about if if I, if they can say certain words that can trigger folks in ways that are unspoken, which is the definition of dog whistle politics, right? Then, then they get to then corral this feeling of, scarcity, we're losing our ground, and also having this inaccurate statement, right? Because they're still in the majority, white students are still in the majority. And then we get to a point that I've made uh, a number of times in the past, the truthiness of the statement that uh, Colbert had had coined a, a few years ago, which even though factually your position is not accurate, meaning here, again, 
factually, your position is not accurate, right? We see the majority is 54%, but it feels to you like it's accurate. It's your feelings that are drawing it. It's your feelings that are deciding this, which is just ridiculous, right? So if they feel a certain way, a certain uh, segment of our society, then it becomes their truth. And that's what I I ultimately landed with after I looked at the statistics. Because much like you, I started looking at the breakdown and I thought, this this is just ridiculous. Well, so I have a a devil's advocate question. Um, (laughs) Because sometimes folks in their comments actually let slip some real stuff. So we know that in neighborhoods, there's a certain threshold percentage-wise that when a neighborhood gets to a certain diversity level, meaning presence of non-white folks, because that's how people seem, sorry, political, I'm getting political calls, sorry about that. So so uh, we know that there's a threshold that triggers white flight in neighborhoods or in certain program spaces. So there's another thing in my brain that kicked in in response to this that I'm like, well, maybe maybe they're actually having to struggle with a real thing, and that is there are triggering effects that can make white folks stop participating. So, 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 so really, what we're concerned about in, in declining enrollment here is not the overall con- declining enrollment, but the declining enrollment of, of white students. White students, yep. And mm. so, and, and there's and there's a particular reaction when that happens versus a silence uh, when it's uh, folks of color uh, declining. See, and that's where Svigum took it because there's declining enrollment across the board, but his question brings up exactly what you two were talking about and what he was talking about was declining white enrollment. And although he didn't say that, he prefaced it before he brought it up. And um, so anyway, I think, you know, so I mean, so I, I think our immediate reactions that I've heard everyone express were the same. And I was very angered how someone on the Board of Regents for one of the largest institutions in the state of Minnesota for education um, would make a comment like that, right? And then try to pl- and then and then try to play it off. There was a lot of responses from from folks about it, and there was like a bunch of articles about like, oh, how do students feel, you know, and all this stuff. But the week after he had made that comment. And then he, um, people were call- calling for him to resign from the board. He did resign from his position as vice chair. And then the story just ended there. Everybody kind of moved on. And there's, I don't know if there's any pressure still for him to really take responsibility for these just ridiculous, that ridiculous comment. And then to try to defend himself by saying he talks to friends about it and by saying it's because of his age. Like, if, if you're saying that you're if your excuse for saying stupid stuff is that you're old, then maybe you shouldn't be on a board of regents. Just saying. Well, but, but Hilly, I, to me, that brings up another nuance that I couldn't help, but see or not see or hear or not hear in response to Svigum's remarks. So, um, Anthony pointed out that, you know, at the time of that comment, it's 54% white, 32% Native American, 
and then and then other ethnic groups are represented um, for a total of about four percent less of the student body, and so the largest group is Native American, and so I think what that nuance was was that you know I have talked about how how when issues come up in the Native American community, um, we have to fight very hard to have it rise to a level that others are even aware or hear what's happening. And this had that same type of feeling because I didn't hear any outrage coming from any other community of color other than the Native American community. It was the Native American student group who immediately responded and invited Svigum out in a day or two after he made that comment where they kind of set him straight, right? Or they attempted to explain to him um, the richness of the diversity that was on that campus. Then it was about, I think, a week later, after he finally resigned for, as vice chair, that a letter from the a group here in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis called uh, Metropolitan Urban Indian Directors sent the letter where they were actually asking Steve Swigum to step off the Board of Regents. But the, all those responses came from the Native American community. It was dead silence everywhere else. <laughs> so I'm like, holy smokes, how can someone make a comment like that and no other community of color raised an issue or brought it to the forefront other than the American Indian community? Now, I know racially that's the way it breaks down, but that, to me, I found also the, the silence was deafening, all right? It gets, it, gets, it gets complicated. It gets real complicated. There were definitely conversations in, in my circles, but, um, you know, I, I got I to gotta take the point that, that the organized response was on the backs of, native, uh, uh, of the Native students in this regard. And, and I want to point out and stress a couple of things here. As, as we think about the comments themselves, it insinuates that a cause for decline is the presence of folks who are non-white. That is a very dangerous game and slope because it, it leads into you know, that in combined to all these different things that try to make me look feel like a threat leads to real experiences with communities who who have been kind of whipped up in this in this way. So I may I may insinuate a seemingly harmless question that's trying to you know come at this from a different angle, which is what a lot of the sentiments are trying to be steered towards in the response. Um, but any insinuation that my presence is a threat leads to reverberating effects from my day-to-day -day encounters. I mean, it, it, it that is a piece of this that I don't think we're talking about, um, and 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 it's getting muddied right around the same time as we have folks who are saying anything that you things that universities have been tried to do to diversify, right, by taking into account race and the experience of marginalized communities who haven't historically been here, in order to make sure that you don't continually stay pushed out of of participation in universities is up for question right now as well at our federal level. Even though we know that when those policies go away, 
the decline, the, the, the enrollment of folks of color at universities rapidly declines, right? So, so the challenge is we know it works, but folks are willing to, to stay in questioning this, this presence thing um, and, and, and feel like somehow I'm going to be losing the way like, things get more diverse. I would offer, as my mentor, as our mentor, Don, uh, Elder Mahmoud El-Kati, often reminds us of um, in that part of this equation is that my presence can and will at some point make you have to reflect on yours. And I think that might absolutely be something that causes somebody to think twice about going to a more diverse university because it may force me to have to deal with something that I have had the luxury of not dealing with for a long time. You know, the other extension of, of what your points are, Anthony and Don, is along the lines of, if we look at historically from a public policy standpoint, how various programs have been gutted at universities that traditionally would have created more space for uh, students from marginalized backgrounds. And marginalized can be economically and race and sometimes often both, right? And we have seen um, the decline of the Pell Grants, the decline of various financial aids that are focused on uh, enrollment of, of diverse students. So for me, that's in addition to all that has been said, right? And the fact that we know that education is the biggest equalizer. And as the tuition rates, private and public universities have continued to skyrocket and make it unattainable for students, that's the other part of that. That's in addition to what you've just said, Anthony. So if we think about the detrimental impact to our BIPOC communities in, in terms of students wanting to seek higher education, all of that for me goes into that equation. And it desperately then continues to disadvantage an already marginalized set of students. As you continue to, as we continue to raise this uh, this this issue and reflect on what was said here and what's happening at the Supreme Court right now in terms of affirmative action at colleges. One of the things that we have to uh, come to terms with is the fact that if we're going to do something to redress what has happened historically, we have to do something. And if at every turn, the any action that we take to go back and redress that is resisted as some kind of somehow losing or being unfair to the folks that are in power. We have an we have an unresolvable tension and difference here that at some point has to has to break. Do we want a society where folks where where our institutions reflect those that are in society? Um, I would offer that in many cases. And, and many of this hasn't even been proven in the cases that have gone to try to bring down affirmative action because it's been very hard for folks to be able to prove that they would have got in if it wasn't for those policies. In actuality, many of the times we find out that you're still overweighted in many other factors that are taken into um, even when race is on the table. But that's, you know, that's, 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 a, that's a whole another episode. But we got to have a conversation at some point about do you want folks of color to be uh, an equal part of society to you or not? And if so, then we have to address these, these the, 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 the years of disadvantage. We talked at one point about an article that said if all things being status quo, it would take about another 450 years 
just for black folks, we're just talking just in that one group, to catch up to their white peers at a current status slow. Now, that implies that it's a vacuum, that no other resistance to their success comes in there and no accelerations happen. Just leave everything as it is. And so we have to do something. And I think we're right now going to be heading for a conversation that begins to unpack that. Before we switch off, if I can say one more thing to connect the dots, the Board of Regents candidates all have to be approved by the legislature. And so when we think about who these leaders are and what values they bring to the table, that's why it's so important to vote, right? is depending on who is in the legislature, that will then influence who gets on as a regent. And so when we think about connecting the dots and as well as the Supreme Court, the US Supreme Court is hearing that case right now that you referenced earlier. Well, how do these Supreme Court justices get to their role? They're appointed by the US president. So, well, they're selected by it and then ultimately appointed by uh, the Senate, right? Again, that's why it's so important to vote. And we we had a couple of segments for counter stories with regard to voting. Can't say this enough, that that age group between 18 and 30, where we have hist- historically seen the lowest turnout, particularly in midterm elections, is what's critical right now. So for all our listeners, if you have anybody in your circle, whether family or network or neighbors or friends or kids of friends, 18 to 30, make sure you encourage them to vote. That's all. Thank you. Thank you, Luz, for put, for putting that in there. Vote, 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 vote. I think we're going to have to make sure that we keep that going all the way through. All the way through. Um, so in Despite having to deal with yet another comment, my a friend of mine calls it, you know, it, it just par for the course in, in, in the state of Minnesota. But there are other moments uh, folks are, are celebrating, right? So I want to switch his gears a little bit. We've come through the commercial Halloween season. Um, and right now, one of the things that, will, that um, have happened recently is the state of Minnesota in the Capitol Rotunda has been transformed in a very interesting and unique way as it relates to Dia de los Muertos. So, so does somebody want to weigh in and, and, and tell us a little bit about what happened at the state capitol that, again, was a first for Minnesota? First, I want to say how exciting it is that, that this has happened. And again, I don't know why, but I was surprised this was the first time that this has happened, you know, with, with just the, the number of Latinx folks in Minnesota, in the Twin Cities. I was surprised that this was the first time it happened. Um, I have a colleague who is from Northern Minnesota who had a, a hand in putting this together and just the amount of pride and joy that they took from doing this and the recognition, I think is, it was, I thought it was really, really great. And I hope that it teaches people about Dia de los Muertes because, you know, we see the cookies and like the little uh, propaganda using it to sell stuff around the, around the Halloween, you know, holiday and so hopefully this is get, will give folks a chance to really learn what it is. So if you've been sitting there wondering what the heck Lee is talking about. <laughs> the first ofrenza or the first altar um de muertos um uh is the first time a cat that uh, uh an ofrenza has been erected in the capital. It was in the Capitol Rotunda 
And so organizers um, um, are saying that the first altar de muertos honors both deceased loved ones and the com- contributions of Latinos. And so it, it, that's there. My kids, when when the story broke, immediately went to Coco because yep. they were trying to figure out and understand what what was being erected there. And and one of their friends, um, who's who's Latinx, said leaned over and said, "It's like Coco. It's uh, they, they, like the Alfrenza." And they went, "Oh, they did one of those at the Capitol Rotunda," and they lit all the way up. So so that's what has been erected for the first time at the Capitol Rotunda in Minnesota. You know, there's so much there. Halia, I'm so glad that you um, brought up the the pride. The fact that this is being done at the state capitol cannot be overstated in terms of representation and belonging. And it's it's, it's been a, a really um, significant step to recognize and validate our communities uh, across Minnesota and, and having us really be seen, quote unquote. Although that said, um, it is it is really disturbing how some folks take a shortcut in, hmm. in um, viewing what this is all about. So I'm going to uh, take some time to just kind of break it down. We've said before and in pr- plenty, plenty times been in prior years, this is not a Halloween costume. This is not a Halloween event. It happens to take place in a similar time frame and businesses and and the commercial market have really commercialized it, which I think adds to the confusion. But like anything else, I think we all need to be able to question and learn about the celebration and take the time, take five minutes, take 10 minutes to look at a video. There, there are a bunch of really high quality, well done videos coming out of Mexico in particular that you can find on YouTube. They're either all in English or they're um, subtitled in English and, and then narrated in Spanish that, that are really authentic. Uh, keep in mind, if, if you don't think of anything else out of this conversation, the one thing that I want you to take away to keep in mind is, it is a memorial tribute. It is a memorial service. That's what it is. Dia de los Muertos in English means Day of the Dead. And so for us, it's about honoring the life of our loved ones who are no longer walking this earth. So when people are saying, well, the costumes, well, do you wear costumes for memorial hmm. service? Come no. On. That's why it's so offensive when people say that these are costumes. I posted a, a, a video on, on social media that uh, came out of the consulate's office in New York that was beautiful. It was um, a gentleman wearing a mariachi suit and then a woman wearing a mariachi dress as well. And mariachi, I hope by now people recognize, it's um, it's a fitted suit for men with a short jacket that comes kind of waist side. Uh, and it's got embroidery on the side of the legs going down vertically as well. Um, there's on the front of the jacket and then there's a matching uh, sombrero with a similar decor to it. That's the mariachi suit, and it's it's used for a particular a particular type of music, mariachi music, right? So I wouldn't be wearing a mariachi suit because I don't play or sing mariachi music. But yet, part of my culture is to observe 
and listen to mariachi music. And so you would see the mariachi suits being worn. They're suits. They're not costumes. So that's the first um, clarification that I want to make. I get the same thing every every Hmong New Year too, Luz. Hmm. I get the same thing every Hmong New Year. I, I oh, your costumes that, right? are so pretty. Your costumes yeah. are so colorful. It's like, it's They're not a costume. Not costumes. Yeah. Uh, our celebration begins October 28th and ends November 3rd. October 28th is the first day we light a first candle with the white flower. And that's really intended. And, and there is also a type of marigold that is grown in Mexico that is very different than the marigold that you see here. Um, and there is that Sempasuchil, uh, which sidebar is now there. There are some farmers in Minnesota who are growing this flower here in Minnesota so that we could actually have that variety in Minnesota, nice. which is beautiful. Uh, yes. And there's incense on the first day and there's papel picado. Papel picado is in English. It means um, like a perforated paper. Um, and you see them in really colorful displays and they have geometric shapes to it, for lack of a better word. So that's that's part of that altar. So day one of, of the altar, that's what happens. You light your first candle by then before then you would have had pictures of your loved ones up there, you know, the folks who have uh, passed away and any type of um, mementos that are that were near and dear to them or that remind you of them. So for instance, if you uh, lost a, a, a daughter who had a favorite type of music uh, or an artist, you would put a picture up there, but also something along the lines of that music or artist that she really enjoyed because that's the connection that you would tie to her. On October 29th, you would uh, add a light an, another candle and uh, put a glass of water. And the entire concept here is about welcoming the souls of the deceased back into your home. That's what you're doing in this memorial service and memorial tribute. On October 30th, you light another candle. You, you have your glass of water and then you have pan de muerto, which is bread. And that's intended then uh, to signify you are putting out some nutrients for those who passed away without eating if they died in a tragic way or in an accident. And so they didn't get to eat before they passed away. So we are putting that food out there as they welcome, we're welcoming back so they can have that food. On October 31st, uh, another candle is lit. The water bread is out there. Uh, and then this then becomes one that we uh, dedicate to our ancestors and the children who died uh, in limbo, meaning that folks who were not baptized and they died before that. Um, this started as a religious holiday in Catholicism, but has been commercialized beyond that. But it still holds that Catholicism aspect to it, which brings in that baptismal aspect to it. November 1st, is also known as All Saints Day. Again, the connection there with Catholicism. This is for, on that day, uh, folks who die too soon as children uh, are honored. And so in the, on, on that day, then sweet food and candy and toys are placed at the altar because we are then welcoming uh, young children back into our homes with things that would normally be associated with children. November 2nd, uh, all adults and everyone else um, is intended to visit the altar, visit our, our homes. So in, on that day, 
traditionally speaking, mole is prepared and mole is a type of a dark chocolate slash peanut sauce uh, that goes on enchiladas mostly, but there's also um, other dishes, pollo and mole, chicken and mole that you would see at restaurants. That's put out there. Tamales are, is put out there. And of course, beer and tequila or whatever other kind of beverages that our loved ones would enjoy. And then it caps off with the final day, seven days into it is November 3rd. The last and final white candle is lit. And that's the day that you then say goodbye to our deceased and you ask them to come back the next year. So this is all about a memorial service and tribute to the loved ones. It is not a costume. It is not something to be commercialized any more than you would want the passing of your own loved ones to be commercialized. Well, I hope y'all enjoyed that that school lesson because you just schooled me on a whole lot of things. So I have a whole lot more questions now <laughs> um, as we go. Because as we were talking about beforehand, my my experience usually only it only usually has gone come become visible for me on on the um, second to last day and then the children's day um, and it, largely because of the candy involved because I was a little sugar head when I was a kid but the um, I, I love the breadth of that so so what's coming up for folks because I, I have I feel like all of us have experienced some form of our traditional practices that are sacred having been trivialized by uh, dominant cultural society what's come up for you as you've got the real story on Dia de los Muertos I think the funniest thing for me is like, you know, two or three weeks before Halloween, there are all these articles and stuff that'll pop up and say what not to do on Halloween. Like what, you know, don't appropriate for, for Halloween. Um, and yet people always do both as, you know, uh, Native Americans um, and uh, as the uh, skeleton design for Dia de los Muertes. And whenever I bring it up to folks and say like, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize you were um, of Latin, you know, Latinx descent. And they'll be like, oh, I, I'm not, I, but you know, and they realize then that, you know, they made a mistake in their costume, but it, it always comes to, I'm honoring, I'm honoring, I'm honoring this tradition, or this makes me think of a, of a loved one that I lost. And I don't know how, you know, lose how that comes across to you when people say, well, Okay, I get that I'm not, you know, from that cultural background, but it reminds me of my loved ones, so therefore, it's okay. It's exhausting. That's <laughs> all I can say. It's exhausting because there's so much there, you know. It's as if I would show up, um, you know, dressed as someone's loved one, Um would that be okay to that person? You know, if, if I see, if I'm just going to pick a name out, you know, if I'm going to see John, John Anderson, you know, and if there's a John Anderson who lost either a, a mom or a sister or something, and, and I, I show up dressed like her and I'm, and John's looking at me like, what are you doing? Or maybe, you know, me trying to, to be a part of what, she would look like would that be a tribute to her I don't think so I mean I I just I I don't um I think it's disingenuous and I think it's it's a superficial way to get out of 
the fact that they haven't done their homework and really understood the significance uh, of our traditions. Mm-hmm. You know, you said something very interesting, um, and I think very, very important, in, and that is, you know, this is a celebration of memorials, right? You wouldn't go and put on a costume and make light of a funeral procession that goes through or, or a burial proceedings or a funeral. Um, so, so, so then knowing that purpose, which I, I think, you know, folks, we, we make some trade-offs in representation, right? Um, I, my kids reference to Coco, right? That was their reference point. Not, not when, not a friend or family member, not Auntie Luce, but their method of trying to understand this was through a Disney movie, which great that there's representation spaces there, but I could watch that and go immediately to the costume piece because that's the mentality that I've been indoctrinated in. And I think it's important for us to, especially with all of our different backgrounds, you know, we've, we've got to be in conversation so that I know, I need to know what the sacred is for, for my Mexican brothers and sisters. I need to know what the sacred is for my native brothers and sisters. I'll never forget being um, a, a kid going on a field trip to Mounds Park. And kids jumping the fence and going onto the mound and playing as if on a playground. And the big sigh that my teacher had, I'll never forget it, Miss Edwards, it was third grade. She has this big sigh. And I noticed that as I'm getting ready to kind of walk and just go do what the other kids do, she grabs me and holds me back a little bit. And and the only other folks that are standing with me, not moving, are the other native kids in the in the classroom. Right, because there is an understand. They knew what this was. Miss Edwards knew what this was. I didn't know what this was. A bunch of other kids. I'm grabbing, not because you know I I, I all of a sudden knew by epiphany. No, 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 no. I grabbed them because I didn't want them to go play without me. So I was like, well, no, no. If I can't go, you can't go. Right. But she ended up having to have this 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 conversation as she pulls everybody off and tries to tell where we were. Um, and I will never forget it as she's doing it. Another class from some other school that was there, they go right up on it, go right up on, grow up on it while she's trying. And I see her sigh again. And so I think it's important for us to have some really important conversations about the things that are sacred to us. When you come to my house and you see the open bowl vessels, this comes from um, parts of my family who who um, put open vessels, all the, going all the way back to the to the to the continent of Africa so that ancestors can reside with us. And so you don't put keys in that bowl. I've, I've actually had folks come into my house and drop a, their keys or drop something into that bowl as a, as a storage place for something. All right? I had a friend who's, who noticed them come over a couple of times, um, noticed the bowl but didn't say anything, and then all of a sudden show up with a bag of candy, and they was like, hey, I brought some candy for your bowls that are just sitting out all over the place, and I had to have a conversation about them, about what that is. Um, so I, what other uh, things come up for you all around that that are sacred and sometimes trampled over in your own experience? Well, <clears throat> I think, Anthony, that uh, the what what you just used as as uh, an example with Mounds Park and as you were talking, it was making me think because. There were what Luz, when she explained the different days, um, there were portions of that that made me think of um, 
the ceremony that happens in the Anishinaabe community when someone dies and, go, and, and passes on and begins their journey. So where in this exercise, they're lighting candles. It was the food part. There's a, there's a portion in this, in our, in our ceremonies where food also plays a role for this individual as they begin their journey. Now, I'm not going to, I, I'm not going to talk a lot about that because I've also brought this up prior. We in our community are still getting over the fact that we were, our spiritual practices were outlawed in this country after, um, after the struggle at Wounded Knee. And on a, in a country that supposedly is based on religious freedom and how that gets tossed around, you know, for its benefit in terms of Christianity. But we were taught, at least I was told, and I think most of us were told that this country was, was created as, uh, as folks are being persecuted back in England and in Europe, they came here for, for religious freedom. And yet, um, my people's spirituality, it was against the law until 1978, 75. And so with the, uh, the American Indian Religious Freedom Act. So in order for us to survive and keep those traditions alive, we had to go underground. And so even though now it's been, what, 30, 30, 40 years, it, we those kind of things still aren't talked about. And so you ask that question, part of me wants to, and then a part of me, it refrains. Mounds Park would be like taking a busload of kids to a cemetery, opening the front gate, and then letting those children run in there and run over all the graves. That's the analogy that I can make. The tradition behind those mounds, now that's different. The spiritual, okay, and so, and I can't speak to that because those aren't Anishinaabe, right? So so I'm not quite sure what the spiritual traditions were that it created those in the first place. Um, and I can't speak to that because as Anishinaabe, we don't have similar type mounts. However, the importance of that reverberates through Indian country because even when I was commissioner at Mille Lacs and we wanted to um, build a new location or, or build on our existing location for health and human services, we weren't allowed to uh, because we were aware that there were remains in that area, right? Either from our ancestors or from people who preceded us to that area. So in that regard, it's very sacred. Um, but in terms of those spiritual connections, you know, I think, I, I think that there were some similarities that I was hearing coming from Luz and her explanation of that. But it, you know, but, for us, um, we don't have an ongoing 
kind of thing after someone passes. I for us, you know, what I can share is that when someone passes, um, we're taught that for a year we we don't speak that person's name. And then sometimes after a year, we do have another celebration that then allows us to uh, begin to be able to speak that person's name again and to recognize that in their journey, they should be, they should be where they should have gotten to, if that makes sense. Right. So for us, it's not an, uh, it's not a six day thing once a year. It's kind of a, we have the, we have the ceremony when they begin their journey. And then a year later, we can have another ceremony feast honoring the fact that they should be at their destination. I love all these connections that I'm feeling from both you and Luza's stories. You know, you talk about food and, and um, with Hmong people, that's a big, big thing. At New Year, we set a, a plate out for our ancestors. And I was always really scared when I was a kid because my dad and my grandpa, who was a shaman, would set up this extra plate and they would do, you know, some chants and some talks and stuff. And I was always like, oh, my God, is there a ghost sitting there? Is that why we're leaving that plate out for someone? Um, but another just kind of a funny story, I guess, about the clashing of cultures is, you know, my husband is white. And when my grandfather passed, um, I I would take my grandmother to visit his grave. And um, the first time we went, my uncle had gone before us and left food out. And so this is something we do is we literally bring food to the the tombstone, the, the cemetery, and leave food and money there. Spiritual money is not regular money. So it's, it's a special kind of paper that you buy. And my husband walks up and he sees all this food. And he goes, oh, my God, somebody trashed grandpa's grave. And he's running up to it to clear the food out. And I'm sitting here screaming, no, 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 don't do that. It's meant to be there, you know. And and that was just a, a moment of, like, things that I didn't think I would need to ex- have to explain. And he was in such shock that and in and, and, and horror that he almost took away grandpa's meal, right? Um and like and like what you said, Don. You know, we we don't do a six day or, or a, an annual uh, visitation to our deceased, but um, sometimes we will often do another sort of spirit calling for those who have passed if we believe that um, their spirit has left where it should be. So we recently had one for my grandfather. Um, he had passed four years ago, and uh, my uncle uh, saw him in a dream. And we see that as grandpa visiting. And it led my uncle to believe that one of my grandpa's spirits, we believe there are three spirits, one of them had left the location it should be. And so we had a, a special ceremony for that. You know, in order to do that, we set up a little hut and some clothes. And if I was to walk by somewhere and see non-Hmong people do that, yes, I would be 1,000% offended. So it's just it's interesting to me always to learn about how all of our different cultural cultures intersect in our traditions. I, I think it's interesting to to be able to to then put that together, right? So so knowing 
if I know native tradition says we're not going to, or in, 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 in the Shinabe experience, uh, Don, I heard you say that we we don't speak the name until a certain date, right? So, so there's going to be some clash there for our tradition space where we keep the stories alive and that's the gesture that keeps the ancestors with us. Even in the night before um, the funeral, you know, a practice that we would, we had grown up for a long time is that we would get together and keep watch over body. This is the, this, the, the, the kind of more, more traditional reasoning for it, but it had become over time the time that we tell some of the most important stories that we can pull out from that person's life. A lot of it uh, ends up being the joy stories. There are some stories about the realness of it that can come out. But it's a tradition that I've been seeing, seeing decline, but I thought it's so powerful. But if I know that, and I know your experience space, now... I can we we'll have to navigate and figure out how we do that, but I can't navigate it if I don't know about it or if I don't spend some time to learn about it and to learn how that makes sense, um, you know, across context or if it doesn't. And we have to just just say, you know what, this one doesn't fit together, and we're not going to force it to. We're going to figure out how to navigate around it. But see, that's that tr- constant tripping over each other that actually allows us to be able to find something, uh, fi- find a pathway forward, not omitting it or pushing it away. What I would just offer to is that we can't have any of these conversations if we're scared that a place is coming, becoming too diverse. So I'll offer to you to our listeners just for full circle it <laughs> from the opening conversation to learning about Dia de los Muertos to intersecting all of our different um, experiences, and and we have an opportunity to do so. At the beginning of the show, you had mentioned, like, this is just us kind of hanging out, right? Having a conversation on our couch type of thing. And it really is. Because this is, I feel, every time we have a counter stories, I feel like I'm in a safe space to ask questions about things mm-hmm. that I'm ignorant on. And and I'm excited and proud to be able to share what we do in our culture with the rest of you guys and our listeners. True story. Facts. What is it? What did I say? Facts. No cap. I'm not even gonna go down that road because my kids are gonna laugh at me. But but, Clea, I think I think you're. <laughs> period. No caps. That's what I was trying to get to. Period. No caps. Um, yeah. And 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 even and what I love about it is even when like I I said to lose earlier, right? I was like, oh yeah, the 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 two days of Dia de los Muertos, and she's like, hold up, no 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 no, it's a whole week, homie. <laughs> and, and and it's received with love because you know we've got a space to do it and not only are willing to be wrong but willing to to not know and willing to walk with folks and not willing to assume that our knowledge is supreme another reason why diversity on campus is important because then you make these friends right right and you don't end up being a, a 30 year old 38 year old pastor just learning the intricacies of Dia de los Muertos keeping it 100 <laughs> <laughs> they can only come when we intersect with you, each other. For real, for real. And I, I honor what both of you have said, and, and it brings me joy to hear it. The other part that I, I want to clarify for our um, our friends listening is that you can be a part of Dia de los Muertos. You just have to do it the way it's intended to be done, right? So it's about we we all, by this juncture in our lives have had someone pass away, whether it's a grandparents or parents or aunties, uncles, whomever, right? Children in your lives, friends, close relatives that are, you know, outside of your nuclear family. It's just 
it's yes, we want you to be a part of the celebration. Just don't commercialize it and don't run afoul of it, right? Adhere to the guidance that that is traditional and you'll be good uh, without exploiting parts of it, without calling our suits costumes, you know, without trying to um, have your face painted for the sake of having it painted, right? I mean, sitting in a suburb and 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 um, and saying that you honor the other's muertos by face painting and doing nothing else in terms of the memorial tribute that is not the right way to go i mean that that is not acceptable so i we're trying to guide folks in a gentle way and the beauty of the internet is your best friend you don't you don't need latinos or latinas in your life telling you to do it ABC, just spend a few minutes on the internet looking at authentic celebrations that are made um, and coming out of Mexico or coming out of the consulate of Mexico, uh, offices across the U.S. There's plenty of, of information and materials out there that can ha- you know, help guide you in, in your honoring of, of deceased ones in your life. Because that's a part of all of us, right? We all want to honor who we've lost. It's just if you want to partake in the seven-day Dia de los Muertos celebration, then it should be in honor of and not you don't get to commercialize it. Hmm. Well, in the words of author Chinua Achebe, the world is like a mask dancing. If you want to see it well, you do not stand in one place. I can't think of a better way to pull down the reason that diversity matters and it makes us better as we learn. This has been Counter Stories. I'm Anthony Galloway, senior pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota, and senior partner of Dendros Group. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the State of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I've stated are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. And I'm Don Eubanks, associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group, VP of Programming for Ampers and Counter Stories producer. I look forward to our next conversation. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the Other Media Group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com.